Today on TechNATO, we'll be talking with Linux training architect Ross Brunson. We're also going to be looking at an open PGP attack and find out why people are drinking an Instagram star's bathwater. That's all coming up on TechNATO, starting right now. Welcome to TechNATO. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined today by Don Pizzette and Justin Dennison. How are you gentlemen doing? Uh, word. Uh, no. Yeah, word. Remember, <laughs> Justin, the people that are just listening and not watching can't hear your enthusiastic thumbs up. Word. So you need a sound that goes with it. <laughs> thumbs that up, word. That doesn't match. It doesn't match with your face right now. So, hey, we got a big day um, today. We have a lot of interesting stories. We've got an interview coming up with Ross Brunson, who is an author with uh, with CompTIA, uh, I think for Linux Plus, right? Yeah, it looks like Linux Plus. So that's going to be exciting. Uh, he's actually going to be here in the studio today, not even amazing in the world. So. Uh, we're also going to be playing Buzzword Bingo. Uh, if you want to join us, head over to go.itpro.tv slash buzzword-bingo. Did I say something already? Oh, no, was I was just square? marking my first okay. space. <laughs> I was like, wow, what did, I, what did I say? All right, well, let's head over to our first article now. It's on CNET. Amazon asks FCC to greenlight its internet satellite plan. Uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are competing in another kind of space race, and FCC chairman, oh, God, I always say his name wrong. That guy it's is Ajit all Pai, for it. Isn't it? Ajit. Ajit yeah, I'd yeah. Say he's the, the former first Verizon exec, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was a big lobbyist. Wait, isn't that a conflict years. of interest? Oh, totally. I'm but it's kidding. fine. Oh, oh, yeah, no. I'm being sarcastic. Net neutrality. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm personally excited uh, about this because we talked a few weeks ago um, about the the low orbit microsatellites and all that stuff, and so if I can get my internet. Uh, from from Amazon included with my Prime account. That sounds like a deal. I'm in. Sure. I, I don't know. This is one of those things where I go, I don't even like the Echo device that's in my house that randomly comes on and goes, what did you say? Uh, so <laughs> Nothing. I, I, Nothing I, I don't to know you. if low-orbit satellites are what I want from, from that same thing, but it could be. Maybe it's really fast internet, and then I could go live out in the middle of the country. 3,236 low-Earth orbit satellites provide broad, uh, broadband internet globally. Do you remember the days when companies had something they were good at and they kind of stuck with it? Like mm. uh, Ford would make cars and more cars. But now we've got all these companies like Apple and Amazon that are making 10,000 different things and they've got satellites in the sky and... You know, at well, some point, it's funny, and I and I, I I will not get political, but I I know that a lot of the uh, candidates in the Democratic field are talking about break up Google, break up uh, Amazon, things like that. And it's funny because then I'll see articles that are like Microsoft will be like, yeah, break them up, and then it's like, well, until we name you on the list, and they're like, well, well not us, but yeah, yeah, but you're right. Us. I mean, you've got companies like Google that, hey, you're you're a great search engine and ad platform, and now device manufacturer and phones and. Software and Nest, yeah, about Nest and yeah. yeah, all kinds of crazy. I don't even know how you would break something like that up. Yeah, it's I don't know, but uh, you know, we use the uh, Amazon Cloud Cam at, at mm-hmm. our house, and so I think it's neat that as soon as they get these satellites up, we won't need the physical cameras anymore. We can just rent the video feeds right from, from them. From the satellite, and, uh, you know, the problem solved. Yeah, I think I like the idea of being able to look up and see where where my internet's coming from directly. So uh, obviously, this will be uh, a few years off until I think. Uh, we're seeing anything like this happen, but they're waiting for um, approval from the FCC to be able to launch these, which, I don't know, it's space. Just go. 
Ask for, yeah, ask, I don't, ask I don't, for forgiveness. Uh, I tell you what, you go get a weather balloon and launch the stuff <laughs> into space and don't ask about it yet and see what happens. Like people will show up at your door. Really? Because you can get a weather balloon and put like yeah. a GoPro in I've it. I've seen videos and like that and I thought, oh, that'd be fun. Orbit. Yeah, it would be fun, but you have to file, I think you have to file a plan with. You're supposed uh, to, but there, we, we covered this a, a few months ago. There was the uh, the Indian startup that sent up some 3,200 satellites or whatever and didn't have the right paperwork, and they ended up getting like a slap on the wrist. Oops. Uh, so yeah, it's a yeah, pretty big. As long as Peter's say, redheaded, that's not how that uh, works. Uh, as long as you say you're the prison. CEO, though. Oh yeah, we yeah. learned that well, last CIO. week. Yeah, if, uh, yeah, if you're C level, then you will you'll, you'll say, hey, okay. your penalty is you now have to file the paperwork that you should have fi- filed before. By the way, how do you pronounce this? K u i p e r. See, I didn't. Yeah. Cooper. Cooper. Project Cooper. Well, I'm sure it's named after some historic space thing that we don't know about. It's the. It's someone, are you searching for that now? It's the Kipper Belt, isn't it? The see, yeah, it Kipper. is the Kipper yeah. Belt. Right. Yeah. So you say Kipper? Yeah, it is Kipper. I've it's never just seen who it decided spell it. to spell. I've it heard like that, that word, but yeah. I've never it, seen it well, spelled. Well, there's two. I, I'll show off my terrible astronomy knowledge, but there's two asteroid belts in our solar system, and one of them is the Kipper Belt, and the other one I don't know the name of. But, but I, did you know, know there was a U in that? Uh, I don't know that I've ever had to spell it. So, yeah. <laughs> and there's and you the use that in a I thought there was like a Q and a silent PH. Yeah, it's good luck when they say all you have to do is go to Kipper.com. And sign up, and there's no one signs up, because there's a U. All right, let's head over now to our next article at Duo.com. Uh, this is Decipher, the security news that informs and inspires. Open PGP certificate attack worries experts. Um, I'm not even an expert, and, I, and I'm worried based on the headline. Is, it, is, this, uh, is this one of those headlines that's just designed to... To, to uh, make me afraid? I think the font and page layout really makes this page look uh, aggressive and dangerous. I think the uh, word you're looking for is unreadable. But. So, <laughs> uh, open PGP, not the most popular thing in the world. Uh, if you if you never heard of it, PGP just stands for pretty good privacy. It's actually owned by Symantec, uh, but the, the PGP owned by Symantec is a closed thing that, that not anybody's really allowed to use without licensing from them. So there's GPG, which is the GNU Privacy Guard, and, and both of them, they, they just allow you to encrypt stuff and send it along. And people who have your key, uh, or, well, somebody can use your public key to encrypt something, send it to you, use your private key to decrypt it. So you need a way to be able to exchange public keys, uh, you know, in a, like a centralized directory. So there's a couple of key stores that are available that are, are considered the most popular ones, uh, and the SKS is probably the biggest one. And there is an attack right now that's being pulled off. That's, it's not like a, an exploit. It's really just taking advantage of, of like spam, where when somebody posts a public key to the SKS stores, they, they upload their key, and now it's available to everybody, right? So anybody can take that key, encrypt data, and send it to that person. Well, if you use somebody's key and validate that it's good, you can kind of stick a little signature on the end of it saying... I validated it. I say this key is good. And the idea behind it was the more validations a key had, the more trustworthy it would be, right? That was the the idea behind this. Well, someone, and, and they don't know who, has figured out that they can start spamming the keys with approvals, with validations. And they found some keys that had over 100,000 approvals. And so when you went to validate that key, you'd hit this massive block of data because it had all these approvals attached to it and it would cause the program to crash, effectively rendering that key inoperable. And so it's also like a DDoS, almost like a DDoS for that key. But it's not even distributed. It's just like a straight denial of service. You know, they've just found a way to overwhelm that system. And there's no real way to fix it. 
that it, you know they'd basically have to shut off the approval process, but it's a standard, it's in place. Most of this stuff is being run on a volunteer, free, open source basis. Uh, they don't have the resources to fix it, and this will likely destroy the centralized key servers, which will basically put the nail in the coffin of any kind of centralized directory of public keys. Well, that that does sound scary to go along with the font. As a matter of fact, Don, I don't think it's on yours, uh, but on ours, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, does that not look like Tempest? He's got an ad blocker going on. Oh, there it is. Don't there it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this little guy down so, here. Yeah, doesn't that look like you're playing the video game Tempest? I could see that, yeah. Sounds like a Tron thing going on, too. But Maybe that's part of our problem. Yeah, It's good that Justin was really focused on the article, though. Like That's great, Don. I'm going to let you finish, but that looks like Tempest. It does. I had a hard time. By the way, I don't know if I said this up front. A little sleep deprived today, so it may be an interesting <laughs> podcast. That's what we're hoping. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, but for this approval process, as far as this going down, does this really affect if I have a public and private key? Like, like, like I know it puts the nail in the coffin for this public key server, right? But does that really matter? So, uh, what it does is it basically renders the key server useless. So your keys are still good, right? And if you have a key with no approvals attached to it, you could manually send that to somebody. And if they loaded it, that would work. But the thing is, like, 99 out of 100 people don't use this because it's, it's hard. But for the 1 out of 100 people who do use it, it's nice to be able to go to this centralized server. If I want to send Peter an email and do it securely... I don't want to have to call him and say, hey, can you send me your key? And then once I've got the key, then I can encrypt and send you. Instead, I can just go to the centralized server and say, has Peter posted a public key? Here it is. Let me just download it and pull it. And, and most of the email clients that leverage this stuff do that automatically. So that is going to break. And so all the automated stuff, all the stuff that's designed to make this easy is on the verge of being destroyed if an attacker decides to do that. The manual side, the hard side, that's still there and it still works, but... Very few people actually go through that process. Now, now Don said automated. Do I get automation based on that? <laughs> I think we've talked about this before. I think you get like variations the of the words. Because I just want to say uh, thank you to to Don for those last two stories. You said uh, you said Amazon Cloud Camera. Um, I have the Free Square uh, exploit and encrypt were both mentioned there. So I am one word away already. I know the word uh, not from to say now. Bingo, and you uh, you have. Pushed anything. Well, I did just say some of those words to you. Now, I, I would have said more words if you hadn't skipped our first article somehow, was uh, which was the uh, 97 VPNs run by 23 companies. I got 97 VPNs. So now I've said VPN, but... too. Oh, yeah. And uh, and yours isn't oh, one yeah. of them. I didn't click on that. <laughs> yours so... is not one of them. I think that's how it goes. <laughs> huh. How, how did I miss that? Wait, hold on. When I click on that, it just brought up the Amazon story again. Did you put the wrong link under Maybe. it? Maybe. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead. Yeah, and, I think you did. I'm All gonna right. go ahead you and did. blame you for that one. <laughs> Let me hey, hey, give Justin a break. He's sleep deprived. He Wait, what? Do. <laughs> so you were like, why did I open with the satellite? Story? I know I had to hunt to find the yeah, article. Yeah, so I was watching every. He was like, what the crap? Yeah. Okay. Well, Don, tell us about this article that you've uh, brought up by yourself. I would like to remind everyone that the uh, TechNado podcast is a professional production of the. <laughs> All right, so uh, let me let me hit this article here real quick. Hidden VPN owners unveiled 97 VPN products run by just 23 companies. Uh, this is a question I hear about a lot. A lot of people are looking to use VPN services because they feel it makes their data more secure. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. Uh, and then they're trying to figure out whether or not they can trust the VPN companies. Spoiler alert, you usually can't. Now, what happens here is... 
many, many people are recognizing the need to use a VPN and not for security purposes, but because they want to access Netflix where they shouldn't be, or they're behind an oppressive government and they want to be able to get to sites they're not allowed to get to. And VPN services will do those two things, right? They will let you get to sites you're not supposed to, and they will let you watch Netflix uh, when you're in other countries. But as far as like privacy and security, those are not things you're going to get from a VPN provider that charges you $40 a year, right? That's just not a, a realistic expectation. That's like expecting to get a uh, an F1 quality race car for the price of a Hyundai. That's just not a, a realistic expectation. But where it gets worse is some security researchers did a study across VPN products that were available in mobile app stores. So they were looking at the Apple App Store, which is a little bit sparse in this area, and the Android App Store to see what VPN products were posted there. Because just any old person can download an Android app and then click connect, right? So these are things that people use. And what they found was that when they looked at 97 products posted by 97 different companies that when they started tracing back the companies to the addresses they were registered to, to the support emails, to other things, they found that it really just boiled down to 23 companies and that over half of those companies were actually based in China, which meant the VPN tunnels that you were leveraging were oftentimes using Chinese infrastructure. So your VPN tunnel was passing you through China before heading over to wherever the endpoint was that it said it was using. In China, they have very strict rules about your encryption keys. The government has access to all of them, which means these are not providing any privacy or security whatsoever. So if you're just looking to change your IP address, they'll deliver on that. But security is certainly lacking. And uh, this was all on VPNPro.com as a part of their blog. Uh, you can jump over and read it. And they kind of they, they actually do give a whole list of the companies and how they track them down. It's, it's a neat read. Uh, most of them are not VPN providers that you've heard of. Uh, now, they have advertisements on their website for VPN providers, and I, I was hoping there would be the irony of them advertising for one of these, but they didn't. Uh, so, uh, But there's companies in here like IPVanish, StrongVPN, Encrypt.me, FreeVPN, NamecheapVPN, uh, which Namecheap is a, a, a big registrar, so I don't know if that was a knockoff or actually associated with Namecheap. Uh, but a number of other ones that were out there that uh, you know were just tied to various companies that are all... Uh, that are all really run by a central organization. Many of these are just white labels of the same product over and over again. I feel so lied to. Uh, yeah, no. I'm, I'm kind of speechless. I'm, now, do you but, guys use any VPN products like so this? So I have, uh, I actually use Express, um, but I don't use it often. I just periodically use it if, I, if I'm like, ah, I don't want necessarily this to be tied to my current location. It makes it sound like I'm doing something wicked shady, but you know, there's just sometimes I. I need to not look like I'm in a hotel or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I use one of those. I had never heard of any of those. That, so the, that's a the, good thing. The app-based ones, I always get leery of. And they're like, it's an app-based VPN. I'm like, eh, I am distrusting of you in general. So, uh, But you're telling me it's not secure. Right. Okay. Right, because you... It may be using the strongest level of encryption possible. They usually aren't, but maybe it is. Uh, but if the private key has been turned over to another agency, or, or if they have the private key, which they do, then you you don't know who has access to that data, which is, you know, we're normally using SSL and other things like that inside of the tunnel, so that gives us the extra level of protection. But, uh, you know, if you're truly trying to conceal what you're doing, if you're behind a repressive government or uh, oppressive government, then, uh, you know, don't count on this. To like keep if you're you, behind it, like if you're you're part of it? Uh, well, I guess there's that side too. If you want to mask yeah. your connection, if I'm part of an impressive government, yeah, yeah, I, use, I need all the keys. I, I use I viscosity. All. Apparently, that's what uh, 
What, Nate RIT? Uh, oh, Viscosity is just a client. Ah, oh, dang so, it. Uh, you use our own VPN server that we have here in the oh, building. Oh, it's our own yeah. thing. Yeah. Which, you know, anybody can set one up. You can go on AWS or DigitalOcean and for five bucks a month stand up a, a very simple node that's running OpenVPN, and now you control all the keys and you know that, that kind of solution. Not it, It's hard for a non-technical person to do. But if you're a tech person, you know, there's a ton of tutorials out there easy to set up. Man, the one time I actually tried to i haven't had a scenario where except for to access things on the network i've, I've got to do sure. our vpn but in my own you know browsing where i'm like i need to be on a vpn now i was over in the uk and i was trying to watch or get the scores from a football game so i was like all right pick a vpn and pick that i'm in america and they would not let me watch that still could not figure <laughs> it out because when i tried to watch the football game it said you cannot watch this it's are, not are available we, are in your saying region. like like huh. like Soccer football, no, no, or ES, like I was watching, trying football. to watch ESPN <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> like, uh, through Canadian my cable football. provider, and uh, and they would not give it to me in my region of of the United. I wonder Kingdom. how they do that. And so I, I that mean that would that would have to mean the VPN is leaking location data, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that would your location. Yeah. Um, you ever go to IPLeak.net? Mm-mm. I think it's I have been It's a super yeah. cool site. The people over at AirVPN, this is not an AirVPN advertisement, although I am a customer. Uh, <laughs> so I, I don't get it for free. I actually pay. Uh, they have IPLeak.net. And if you go there, it shows all the information you leak. Here, I'll, I'll bring it up on my laptop. Yeah, here we go. Uh, United States, so Florida. I'll browse to it here on my laptop. And I, I'm not VPN, but you'll see just when you connect to a website, you leak a ton of data. And so here it's pulling up for mine. You can see like my my public IP, and then it's going to try and figure out my private, my internal IP, and it, it should, uh, although it hasn't come up yet. Uh, and then it'll go on to show other things. This is all information that you leak out so it can figure out where you're, where you're located. And you can fire up a VPN connection and then go to IP leak, and it'll test and run through and check and see if you're leaking in any one particular area. So, you know, it, it geolocated me here to the building and somewhere in here. I, I don't think I'm concealing my internal IP. Maybe I am doesn't look like it got it. Well, anyhow, even if you're behind like a NAT router or whatever, it'll it'll determine that a lot of times. So, not in my case. Well, just in case you thought you were safe, now you get to be paranoid because Don <laughs> showed you, ah, you're never safe. But this is actually something I've read about on several VPN providers, not just this, is whoops, there's a... There's a there's an oopsie daisy or there's a software issue and they're accidentally leaking information. So just something to be aware, even if you are using some of those more reputable VPN providers. Good times. All right. Well, let's go back to our next story. To our article roulette. Who knows I what think, article is going on next? We're on uh, on Debian.org right now, if hey, I'm not mistaken. Okay, thank God. Uh, <laughs> Debian 10 Buster released. So. Um, this is coming from Debian, so mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like a bad thing. But that headline makes me sound make it sound like it's something bad, like it's busting. No, it, that's the code name. That's, it's oh, it's the code name for their next. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they, they they always use they use like people names or something, like stupid names. Jesse Dog. and Buster and I forget what the the one before Buster was. Aloysius. Aloysius. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're coming. Alouette didn't, didn't roll right off the tongue. Right? People yeah. name Debian Alouette. Yep. So uh, so. Uh, Debian or Debian? Yeah, it's, it, well, it's funny because I was thinking about that before I said it. Is uh, I posted a video once on onto our YouTube account, and you had said it, and someone was like, "You're saying it wrong. It's a person's name. It's what." It's, and, I, and I know the origin of it, but it still I feel like modifies when it becomes a, yeah, a term it's like this. Deborah and Ian, yeah. and they combine the names. So if you say like Deb, Debian. Ian, and yeah. so I usually say Debian, yeah, uh, but it should like, really be like Debian, yeah. Uh, I, 
I know. I'm going to say people get worked up about things. Dbane or something will just totally ruin it. But uh, you know, most of the Linux distros today have switched to a six month rolling cycle, rolling release, uh, which is pretty frequent. Uh, Debian has not, and it is just releasing Debian 10 after a three year gap. So it's been three years in the making. Uh, you know, as of a couple of days ago, Debian 9 was current, and now we've jumped to 10. So uh, pretty exciting. Not a whole lot different, but the big thing that uh, that I wanted to point out for people, if you're rolling this out, is that App Armor, which was supported under version nine, is now on by default in version ten. And I just imagine that is going to trip a lot of people up. For example, if you bring up a, a web server on Debian ten and you point the home directory to external storage, that's not going to be allowed by default. App Armor is going to block that. You'll have to go in and add that into App Armor. Uh, we went through all this with Red Hat when they started doing the SE Linux on by default, and most people's initial reaction was to turn the stuff off. App Armor is a great solution; it really protects your system. SE Linux is better, but but App Armor does a good job. So I encourage everybody out there: if you haven't learned App Armor yet, you need to learn it, and it's going to help you to uh, better secure your application. So don't just turn it off because that's what you're used to. Make sure you learn how to configure it. It's not that hard. So what is? Uh, sorry, I, I'm I'm gonna show my ignorance app armor i've seen that in a couple mm -hmm. of logs i've seen it like throw an error every once in a while but what is app armor so what it does is it, it creates a like a list of rules that says all right when apache runs it runs as a, you know a binary called apache 2 or something like that right and then it says that binary is allowed to do these things it's allowed to open up TCP port 80. It's allowed to open up TCP port 443. It's allowed to access slash var slash www slash HTML. Those are things it's allowed to do. And then if it tries to do anything outside of that, it blocks it. And so, you know, hackers, they're normally looking for uh, weaknesses in an application, right? A, a vulnerability that they can exploit. And they're basically trying to take an application to make it do something it shouldn't. If they can take over the service account that Apache's running as, they can start accessing other areas of the file system. AppArmor will stop that. And it's hooked into the kernel, so there's not really a good way to bypass that uh, unless you have control of the hardware. So, uh, so it's a really high-level security. SE Linux actually gives you even more power. You can do a lot of extra stuff with it. But AppArmor comes with a, a set of rules for most of your common applications, and then you can write custom rules for your own. Just to clarify, you, you said a second ago, hey, Don, I apologize. I'm going to show my ignorance. Are we supposed to apologize before we do that? Yes, yes. It's illegal <laughs> in at least four states. Okay, well, I apologize. I should start each show with, hello, and welcome to Technado. I apologize for my ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Justin. Uh, here's Justin. I'm going to have to look into that. That's just something that hasn't... But doing some of these uh, recent interactions with Daniel sure. and, and playing around a little more with exploiting my own code, I go, man, it'd be real nice if the service account could just randomly yeah. go all over the file system. It, so It's not that hard. And, and this, this is going to sound like a shameless plug, but uh, we recorded the new Linux Plus content for mm -hmm. uh, CompTIA in the IT2TV library, and we did a whole episode on AppArmor mm. uh, in... If you're running Red Hat or CentOS or Fedora, uh, you're in the SE Linux world. In Ubuntu, you have your choice of SE Linux and AppArmor. And Debian, it's AppArmor, and then there's SE Linux packages for it, if I remember right. That sounds like amazing training. Where, where would I access training like that? You could go to the website at itpro.tv. All right, I hear save, they're running save a special. the ads for the ads. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait a minute. <laughs> I feel conflicted when you say it like that. I'm like, aren't, aren't you supposed to go, good job, Don? Well, no, I mean, I, I've heard Don do the ads when I'm not here. 
<laughs> they're phenomenal. Yeah, so, they were absolutely. So I mean, I, feel, I bought two. I feel like I'm being made fun of. <laughs> uh, all right, let's head over to uh, Pharonix. We're going to stick with the uh, with the Linux news right now. Um, there's a lot of a lot of jargon in this headline. All right, <laughs> AMD Ryzen 7 3700X plus Ryzen 9 3900X offer incredible Linux performance, but with a big caveat. What? All right. What so did I say? In the server world, Intel has been king uh, for decades. If you buy a server with a processor from somebody other than Intel, you are taking a risk. This year, AMD has really stepped up their game, and their Ryzen processors are designed to uh, to really beat Intel. Not not just get them on equal footing; like they're trying to surpass. So they're cheaper than Intel processors, and in many many ben- benchmarks, they outperform the Intel processors. They're making a big push. And so a lot of people are excited about them. Uh, I'm, I've kind of just become an Intel guy over the decades. So it's kind of hard for me to switch. But, uh, but many people are making that jump. They kind of approached gamers first, and now they're, they're making their, their bigger push into the server world. Some of the cloud providers have already started adopting AMD processors. The big caveat that they found on Pharonix, uh, Michael Larabelle, their you know, main, uh, well, I think they're they, owner of of Pharonix, he does a lot of hardware benchmarking and testing. So whenever he gets a new CPU, the first thing he does is benchmarks under different OSs. And what he found was that the latest version of Ubuntu 19.04 will not boot with the new Ryzen processors. So there's a little bit of a issue with how it handles some of the memory assignments. Uh, There's a, I think it's like RD RAND memory or something like that. Uh, It's mentioned in the article what it is specifically. Uh, But either way, the the current kernel for 19.04 does not support it, uh, and your system will not boot. So that's the big caveat. If you're running uh, 18.04, 18.10, boots just fine. You can try the new processors out. But on the latest version, uh, there is a regression in there that will basically make it not work. It's funny when you were you were talking about the the Intel AMD world, uh, uh, like two or three days ago, a, a young man in in our marketing team who I can talk about because I'm sure he doesn't listen to the podcast um, <laughs> was asking me how to uh, how to online trade because he heard you're supposed to buy AMD now because they're they're going to take over from Intel. So. What is their their market share? I mean, I've had some AMD processors uh, in the past, but their market share is still relatively low, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's see. They, uh, you know, they really they, they were kind of neck and neck with Intel a long time ago, right? And then when Intel released the Pentiums, that's when AMD really took a big hit because they. They couldn't release true Pentiums because too much of that was trademarked by Intel, and they weren't able to, to license it. Uh, and so they started releasing what they called their 5x86 processors, which were not the same performance level. And then Intel just started making advancement after advancement after advancement, and AMD just wasn't able to keep up. They had their Opteron processors and then their Threadrippers and and now the, the Ryzen's. And it... They, they make good stuff. They, they bought ATI, and so they have all the ATI video cards and GPUs, and that technology is now starting to tie into their, their regular processors to make them better. So they've made some huge strides, and we'll, we'll see where it goes, but their market share is significantly smaller. In the server world, it is minuscule. Uh, in the desktop world, they actually do make a dent because, like, most of your low-cost laptops and stuff will have AMDs. All right, Don, I just did send you uh, an article, and this is from... Uh, March 11th, uh, and if you're able to bring that up. Um, now i got to launch Slack. And oh, you don't even it. have it open anymore. All right, well, I can just tell you real quick. Um, on the In the desktop market, uh, Intel's at 84%, uh, AMD at 15 
Um, in the notebook sector, uh, 87% for Intel, 12% for AMD. And in the server um, side, what you just said, 96.8% uh, for Intel and 3.2% for AMD. Um, All right, I got it pulled up on my screen now so the, the so viewers at home the, can see it. If you look at my laptop, yeah, the, there we go. Um, yeah, pretty pretty huge disparity there. And this is where uh, you know they've been calling out for years that there's there should be antitrust stuff going on, that Intel is is doing anti-competitive practices, and Intel is just crushing the market. Even, and this is in spite of things like Intel's 64-bit platform totally failed. The uh, Itanium processor architecture, that's all dead. It's AMD's 64-bit infrastructure that everybody follows now. So Intel actually licensed that from AMD, and they're still doing better than AMD. Inspector and Meltdown, all that stuff, wasn't that? Most of that didn't affect AMD that's processors. That's what I'm saying, and, but it's... Yeah, I, I guess it's helped a little bit probably on this market share yeah. uh, move, but it hasn't made as big of a dent as you as you might expect from that. So, interesting one there. All right, uh, where are we now? Uh, so we just did that. One. Oh, Amazon asked FCC to greenlight its internet satellite plan. They did. Yes. <laughs> Why? Uh, because that's, that's where Don news put to that me. link. Um, so we'll just go ahead and skip that one and pretend, <laughs> pretend like we talked about it. I, it's funny because I had no idea why he was like shuffling before to find <laughs> I, that it article. Was, but it was that, borderline that panic. Sense. I mean, right. But he covered it well. Yeah, he did. You wouldn't know it if uh, if we weren't talking about it right if, now. If he hadn't pretended All credit goes to Brad for not pulling up my laptop at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> just seeing you tab, tab, tab. Uh, all right, let's go over to Tech Republic now. Uh, your new Raspberry Pi 4 won't power on. USB-C cable problem now officially concerned. Uh, Confirmed, excuse me. Oh, it's concerning. So, it is concerning. <laughs> yeah. it's we talked about this this new Raspberry uh, a few weeks ago, and, and uh, I, I know, I mean, Justin, you play with those sometimes, right? I do. I, I don't have a four. Um, Good. Well, but, I mean, they just came out last week. Right? Yeah, they did. But as soon as they came out, I like YouTube and various other outlets, like it just started going, hey, Justin, would you be interested in watching an unboxing? I'm like, not really. I mean, it's, I read about it. <laughs> it was on the podcast. But when I saw that it was USB-C, uh, I know the trouble that we had for our USB-C-based laptops, like getting them to, to show on monitors and things. I was like, huh, I wonder if that's going to be an issue. Now, well, is, that the, is that the So it happens that, yes, it is. Yep. Is, it, is it like like on the MacBook where they're using that as you know data, as charging, as, as all different so things? So I that... think on here it's just, just power. Charging. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's just, just power. power. Huh. Uh, it replaces the micro USB, right? right. Um, and then the... It's micro HDMI that uh, does video and stuff, which is odd. They could have used USB C, but apparently there's cable problems, so maybe that was a good choice. Yeah, it's funny. If I mean, if you look at the the photo of the thing, the biggest things on on that are just the connections to yeah. <laughs> to external devices. So, um, but so the problem is basically you're not going to get power to it right now. So what are they doing? A recall? Well, so what's happening here? And and. We kind of reported last week on how this thing came out six months ahead of schedule. Mm. And so now people are saying, well, you could have used an extra month or two to test out a few edge cases. But um, what's going on is you use USB-C to plug into this thing and charge it up. And you need a charger that provides 5.1 uh, volts and three amps. Now, three amps is a little high. Mm -hmm. And if you think about most cell phone chargers, they're not running at three amps. They're usually like one amp or one and a half amps. So uh, already... And this was true with the Raspberry Pi 3 as well, that there's a lot of phone chargers out there that just don't provide the right voltage. So that, that's a problem they have. Well, even if you have one that provides the right voltage, 
if it's a USB-C smart charger, so we're getting a little specific here. It's got to be a USB-C smart charger. Some smart chargers, not all, but some of them are seeing the Raspberry Pi as an audio device and not as a computer. And so when they see it as an audio device, they send a lower amount of amperage because that's all like a set of headphones would need. And so it's not getting enough power and it won't turn on. And this is a hardware problem. It's a problem with the identifier and the way it's sharing that information. If you were to use a like USB-A to USB-C cable, that breaks the smart charger part and then it provides the right voltage and you go. So you can kind of work around it. And some smart chargers actually just aren't smart and they don't recognize what the device is. And so they provide whatever voltage it asks for. So it's not affecting everybody. Most people are able to power theirs on, but the bigger problem here is that they can't fix this with a software update. They're going to have to make a hardware change. And so now there's going to be two different Raspberry Pi 4s pre power chargers screw up and post power chargers screw up, but it can all be solved with a simple adapter change. So but that's one of those things. This has kind of been persistent. I bricked my first Raspberry Pi, my V plus, because I was using a wrong charger. It didn't get enough voltage. It like cycled power a couple of times. Things got weird. And now it just goes, ah, I mean, I kept it for, you know, posterity, posterity, Parts, yeah. but I was like, well, not even, I was just like, look at you, you nice little paperweight. <laughs> um, but I learned my lesson for my, my twos and my threes that I bought. I actually bought powered USB hubs that guarantee each port has, I think, two and a half amp, up to two and a half amps of power yeah. draw. Um, that way I could have multiple ones that were running, and I knew that I was supplying the appropriate amount of power. Yep. Or for the massive sum of $8, you can buy the official Raspberry Pi charger, and then you don't have to worry about so it. So just to clarify, I know these things are inexpensive, and, I, and I've never purchased one. Does it not come with a, with a cable and a charger? Uh, usually it's no, very bare no. bones. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, no case, no cable. I, you, I don't know about SD cards anymore. I know it used to not come with SD cards whatsoever, but that it was $35. No. Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. Cause that, that just means people were getting it, plugging into whatever charger they had at home. And that's when and they run into that was kind of causing the issues. Also okay. like SD cards, you pick the wrong class SD card and then you're like, wow, this thing is wicked slow. And it's because your storage is slow. So, um, there are some if- issues, but relatively inexpensive platform to get started uh actually with a linux-based computer to to play around with so yeah they're, they're great great pieces yeah. of hardware I, mm-hmm. I use them for all sorts of things but you yeah. haven't gotten the new one yet either no no i have i just recently got some three i haven't had time to play with the threes i bought so yeah, yeah. all right well uh, let's get back to the news next up uh, <laughs> amazon asked the fcc to green light it <laughs> i'm sorry that's just uh, uh, uh doesn't get old yeah you know, it hasn't but, but what was that i hadn't heard about that before <laughs> <laughs> you are tired. All right, uh, we're going to head over to Forbes now. Uh, Microsoft issues a warning for 50 million Windows 10 users. Uh, Windows 10, uh, we've been talking about problems they've been having for the last few weeks. So they issued a warning about an upcoming update that might break their stuff? Well, <laughs> This one's going to be bad. All right, I, I want to float out a theory here. And you guys know I have my various predictions, which are largely wrong and uh, have not been proven. But... Um, I am under the impression right now that the Forbes is on an attack campaign against Microsoft oh. uh, because there have been a couple of articles. And, you know, Forbes, that's a reputable source. I, I certainly don't mind citing them here on the podcast. Uh, but lately, they keep posting these warnings. And when you start digging into it, you find out that the headline was super misleading. Uh, and this one, Microsoft issues warning for 50 million Windows 10 users. That's not true. Uh, just, I mean, uh, on the, the face of it, Microsoft didn't issue a warning at all. There's a, a, a TechNet bug article that says that always-on VPN clients 
many of them are not triggering right when your system fires up. Uh, so they're not always on. You have to manually trigger it to launch it. So it's kind of a bug. They're working on it, fixing it. And what Forbes is doing is they're saying, all right, how many Windows 10 users are there? And they're trying to figure out an estimate. And so their reasonable estimate is there's 50 million Windows 10 users. But the reality of this is it, you have to be running Windows 10 1903, that specific build. You have to have a always-on VPN client installed. And like if you meet those criteria... This probably affects less than less than a hundred thousand people, right? Uh, because even the VPN clients from the major providers are not affected. So if you have like Cisco AnyConnect, uh, it's not affected. Uh, many of the Open VPN clients are not affected. This it's it's strange. So it sounds like a huge warning. We need to go and evaluate, but in reality, it affects very very few people. Well, what's interesting too is they walked it back. In the second paragraph, it says update. My thanks to Microsoft, which clarified, oh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Uh, as such, the potential fallout from it will be significantly smaller than I originally understood. But I'm not going to change my headline, apparently, is, uh, wow. is the position they're I, taking. I did not see that update. That's awesome. So That wasn't on there when I, first, up, when I first it, clicked this. Yeah. It's, I'm kind of confused. Like The numbers further down don't, don't match. It goes, Windows 10 1903 accounted for 6.3% of all Windows 10 computers in June, 50.4 minutes. But that makes it seem like Windows 10 computers are 50.4 million. Am, am I reading that wrong? If 6% of 50 million is not 50 million. It is less. Yeah. No, I, I think they're saying 6% of the total Windows Windows Is 50 base. million? No, and they don't give us that number, but that number is, is significantly higher. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I was like, that doesn't, hold on a second. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, here, 800 million computers worldwide. Okay. So 6% Yeah, that would of, be 50 million. Yeah. yeah. So either way, this this is is kind of a non-issue. And there was another one that I didn't throw on the podcast today, but uh, that was posted a, a day before this one that was also kind of full of inaccuracies. So I'm I'm starting to get a little suspect. I, I need to look and see if it's the same author every time. But uh, anyhow, these are I'm going to start using hashtag sensationalized, and Ooh, I, like I think that. this one it totally falls under that. Wait a minute, did you just say you're going to start using hashtags? I am. Yeah, you've been oh, Cherokee told me I have to go like this when I say hashtag. Yeah. Oh, gonna, hash brown. <laughs> um, so, uh, th this is probably why Steve Forbes never made it out of any of the primaries. Yeah. Right. Well, there you go. Just, he probably has Apple stock or, or, uh, something like that. That's making him go, Hey guys, uh, write, write that article. He's a bazillionaire and here I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're out to get him. I hear it. Rawr. All right. Uh, next up over at ZDNet.com, canonical GitHub account hacked Ubuntu source code safe. Ubuntu source code appears to be safe. However, Canonical is investigating. So it's kind of like a headline that goes one way, and then the subheadline's like, but not really, but maybe. Yeah, it's usually the other way around. Like, yeah, because the, oh, it's safe. That would make you say, oh, I don't need to read the article. And then they stick on the end. Well, actually, or is it? You could be screwed. Yeah. Oh, no. So Canonical, the, the company that makes Ubuntu and manages Ubuntu, uh, had what I consider like a nightmare scenario where unauthorized people got access to your GitHub account, which includes all your source code. Now, for an open source company, I guess the risk is significantly lower because you publish your source code. So it would be if somebody got in there and modified it versus if it was like Microsoft's repositories, they could get closed source code and, and release it. That would be a bigger debacle. Uh, but what they're saying so far is they showed where somebody put in a few unauthorized pull requests and that's about it. Like, not they, they haven't been able to find anything truly significant yet. But it's something to keep an eye on. Somebody getting access to your repositories, into your, I mean, any of your code management, 
is a big deal and, and can be dangerous because imagine if somebody were to bake a backdoor into Ubuntu. So you're getting the official install image from an official mirror. It's passing its its uh, uh, hash checks, you know, so it shows it being unmodified and the backdoor is already in it. That's the type of scenario that could be set up here. So I am certain that a company their size has full auditing in process in, in place and they'll be able to look and see. And I think they even mentioned in the article that their build servers weren't compromised it was just the GitHub repository that draws from the build server, so that nobody was actually able to change the builds. It says that they uh, there were 11 empty repositories created in their GitHub account as well. There was nothing in them. Um, but what was interesting, and actually this makes me kind of want to go look through my GitHub to see if there's any shenanigans. There was a uh, internet-wide scan for Git configuration files from some unknown actor, I guess, uh, looking for configuration files in a Git repository that could leak credentials uh, to gain to let you gain access. So that's not necessarily directly mm. related to a canonical, but yeah. that makes me go, huh, I wonder if they're just happenstance, like are there other things that we're going to see start lay, you know, slowly leak out where, hey, our GitHub got hacked too. So uh, just be aware. By the way, um, GitHub do, does have features that if you log in, from an unauthorized location, it'll like spam you with like text messages and stuff like that. So if you don't have that turned on, you may want to turn that yeah. on. Uh, interestingly, the scans were coming from Ireland, uh, not North Korea or China, or, you know, all the people that we normally throw out on these things. Uh, Maybe they got their VPN location yep. thing to work. <laughs> yep. Yeah, like that's, me. I was like, VPN. It's probably it. Or the win. But to, to clarify, and uh, I, I know we've talked about GitHub in the past. We did a couple shows on that yeah. uh, in the past, but you can, you can roll back, right? So, the, I mean, the... The old data is still there. I mean, if something were to happen, yeah. If if you if you detect it, right. Yeah. But if you don't detect it, that's you don't know where... when the change so, happens. So I think the nightmare scenario here is you know like people hacking a Git. You typically can roll back in history, but if their build servers got compromised or anything like that, and bad things got pushed forward, right into the or the wild, that would be hard to remediate against, right? Hard to get back. John's so paying attention here. He just he just I got, checked I got off his word. first thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We said all these things, and he's not. <laughs> just look at our cards periodically. I know I'm screwed because it, well, a lot of things you just say, and then we go, well, that's interesting, Don. <laughs> Check. Check. Uh, yeah, but having it released, like going through a build process and like a binary or an ISO or something getting pushed out, I think would be the bigger issue here because you just go, yeah, delete that pull request and get rid of that commit, and we're all good to go. No harm, no foul. What about Docker? Uh, I mean, this is obviously a, a good place for Docker to fix it. I hear Docker <laughs> solves all problems. <laughs> yep, yep. I was just trying to see if you guys I hear the way say that the it, word I needed. The way that it compartmentalizes applications in a way that they don't have access to the underlying infrastructure is amazing. Yeah, yeah. it's like the things that they use to like <laughs> to ship cotton. What are they and, segmenters? And goods. Yeah. <laughs> Something, Something like that. that. Yeah, fences. They're, fences. They're called fences. Dang it. <laughs> I'll get you. I'm looking at the articles coming up going, nope, nope. <laughs> This interview better be good. All right. Uh, let's head over to The Verge now. Uh, Zoom fixes major Mac webcam security flaw with emergency patch. The company company is now removing local Mac web servers. Um, and so th this is something that could affect us here using both Macs and Zoom in our office. Have we been hacked? And I, I would like to point out that when you say us, you mean... You and Justin, I'm yeah. unaffected by this. I've one. got this little sticker thingy <laughs> over my webcam, so nice try. I mean, seriously, if they look at me, all they're going to see is me going, what? that does not work. <laughs> look at that. It's broke. 
Broke that, again. Now people can see me at home on my Foscam and at work with my yeah. my Zoom on on Mac. So Zoom, the the video conferencing and VoIP solution platform that tons of companies use, including IT Pro TV, uh, they had a problem. Right, their problem was that if you were using Safari and you browsed to a web page and clicked on Join a Zoom conference. It would pop up a box saying, do you want to allow this page to launch an application? Then it would pop up another box, and you have to say, yes, launch the application, and you go. People had to click twice, and that's a problem. And so they solved that problem by saying, you know what? When you install Zoom, if we launch a web server in the background and open up a port, and somebody clicks on a join a meeting link in a browser, instead of trying to access hardware, which triggers the security prompt, we can have it just talk to that web server, and initiate the conference and take us right in and you know start up a microphone and camera and off you go. Users only have to click once. That's awesome. The problem was attackers only had to click once. That that web server would stay running and in fact it would stay running even after you uninstalled the Zoom conferencing software. And an attacker could then send a a malformed not malformed but a, a particularly crafted packet to that web server and connect your webcam connect your microphone and basically put you into a conference without you even knowing it. Uh, and the default in Zoom was to connect with the camera and microphone activated. Uh, they're changing all of this now. So Zoom's already pushed out a patch where, uh, well, they already had made where you could set it where the uh, camera was off by default. That just wasn't their default setting. Uh, so they're fixing that. They're removing the web server. Users will have to click twice to join a conference now. So they're kind of backpedaling on all this. But initially, when a security researcher disclosed this to them, they said it was more important to them that people just click once than it was to patch this flaw. And so the security researcher released it, and <laughs> now they fixed it, and they said that they, you know, privacy is their utmost concern once it's uh, you know, known that we're not protecting privacy. Oops is the big oops there. And this is one of those things, Zoom has done this, but I've seen other software that does a similar thing. Like there's a server running in the background that's listening for some kind of message or, or packets or requests and they use it as a service for going out and like interacting with a mm -hmm. bunch of things. So uh, this is bad for them. Like it's not, well, when you said, if you go to Safari, I was like, oh, well, I don't have to worry about that. I, don't, I can't remember the last time I opened Safari. Does this affect other oh, web browsers? I'm glad that you asked. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I forgot about this. Uh, so they did this to save a click in Safari, right? But even if you don't use Safari, you installed Zoom, the web server comes up, you're vulnerable. So don't, I, I should have I stated that earlier. So it's not just if you use Safari because nobody does. Safari's stupid. But if you use <laughs> Chrome or, or if I'm trying to be. Uh, it's like you know, the IE of Macs. It really is. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, so, so if you're running bad? Chrome or Firefox or whatever, there it doesn't matter because it's the web server that causes the problem. And it was just worse that if you uninstall the Zoom client, the web server stayed behind. So they fixed that. Uh, we've seen this before with other things like Node.js. Tons of applications will install their own copy of Node and, and leave it behind, and you have these non-updated versions floating around. Uh, they're able to execute things. It, it's a common problem. So Zoom is just the latest one. If you had proper firewalls in place, which you know I, I think most people do at this point, it's not like an outside attacker could get to it, but an inside attacker could, or if they were leapfrogging to get in your network, or if you were on a untrusted network like a hotel, someone in a different hotel room could possibly trigger that on your machine. That, that's the type of risk that you have here. All right, so end of the day, if you're uh, using Zoom on a Mac, just make sure you have that latest patch uh, installed there.
you that's, should be good to go. It. Well, the, the latest patch makes it where you can turn off your camera by default. And to my knowledge, the patch that removes this stuff isn't out just yet because this, this all just broke yesterday. Ah, so okay. in the next couple of days, we're supposed to see the bigger patch. So hopefully by the time you're hearing this, there's a patch. Hopefully. So patch it. Uh, all right, let's head over now to ZDNet.com. Logitech wireless USB dongles vulnerable to new hijacking flaws. Vulnerabilities found in Logitech's proprietary unifying USB dongle technology. How is dongle not a buzzword? Yeah, I don't it know. Probably I probably We mention it every same. week. Yeah. Although uh, I, I do want to uh, fess up and be honest here. A moment ago when I said the Zoom vulnerability only affected you guys and not me because I'm not running a Mac, uh, yeah, look at I have my Logitech dongle. dongle right here, and it's totally affected by this vulnerability. <laughs> uh, so. Is that a Logitech? Yeah, his, uh, yeah, his oh, trackball guy. Yeah. I thought you were uh, talking about Yep, because my, okay. my, I have a Logitech keyboard right, and trackball right. right here. I also have them on my home computer, and my, so... My I, Logitech thing is plugged in into my USB. Uh, <laughs> so when you're back at your desk, yeah, you're I'm double vulnerable. Not vulnerable here. So. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's plugged into my FOSCAM. And I <laughs> yeah. was like, you well, there you go. Well, <laughs> if you need it, I have like three more of the Logitech dongles over there in my cabinet from all the Logitech crap I bought over the years. Uh, but, you know, the, the Logitech unifying key is designed for you to be able to connect keyboards, mice, and a handful of other devices to your computer. And that means any keystroke you type or mouse movement is traveling across that wireless signal. It's a proprietary technology that Logitech created. It's not They're Bluetooth. They're capturing my keystrokes? And, yeah, well, you know, that's what they did. What? So, uh, so the problem uh -oh. is they did a, uh, what's the best way to put this? A crap job at security. Uh -huh. And apparently when you plug in the key, there's a brief moment where it's effectively transmitting the private key out. And so uh, an attacker who's there when your key is being plugged in can get the private key, right? And that means if you're not even there, like somebody could come into my office while I'm not here, even if the screen is locked, and just unplug the key and plug it back in, and then they can capture that private key. And once they've got that, at any point when they're within the 30 within feet the or whatever distance, my range yeah. is, which means they could be on the outside of that window that's closed right now, uh, and they would be able to, to capture my keystrokes, so every key that I type would, would then be intercepted. And I actually have keylogger protection on my laptop. That wouldn't matter because they're intercepting the wireless signal between the keyboard and the laptop. Your software doesn't even have a chance to act on it at that point. And they could see your typed password and so on, which is why MFA is such an important thing. Mm, Multi-factor authentication, which I guess is on all you guys' cards. Uh, that way, if somebody intercepts your password, they would still need this other one-time password OTP to be able to... Uh, gain access to it. So big vulnerability. Logitech does, uh, uh, I believe they are working on the update. They, they released a patch that was supposed to fix this, but the security researchers showed where it didn't completely fix it, and Logitech said they were done, and so that's why they've announced their findings. They went through responsible disclosure. So we'll see if Logitech does the rest of it to, to patch the rest of the way. I'm just trying to figure out, like, what was the impetus of, like, you know what we need? We need to throw that private key out there. That's kind of like me walking in the bank, and as soon as I hit the door, I go, my account number is... <laughs> Routing number. <laughs> and go, now that we've got that out of the way, I need to make a withdrawal. Yeah. Right? Privately. Well, the, Privately. The, the main problem here is that key exchanges are hard. They are. And so, you know, doing, like, a Diffie-Hellman key exchange for your trackball... <laughs> is is not a, an easy thing to do. And so when they try and develop things in-house, proprietary things, it it's going to have problems like this. Uh, Bluetooth is actually very secure now. It wasn't in the beginning, but it's had tons of, of companies pouring over the code and reviewing and stuff. The proprietary Logitech technology has not had that benefit. And in this case, it's weak. Well, I would say all that I see out the window is one suspicious-looking squirrel. So Squirrels. With a laptop. Yeah. I believe you mean tree rat. 
Yes, they are tree rats. <laughs> they are they're the tweakers of the animal world. All right, are, are we ready to move to our hard journalism for the day? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great uh, lead-in for our, our interview guest here. Um, <laughs> all right, so this one is over at insider.com. Uh, we're going to do three rapid-fire stories that all kind of connect here. We're going to follow the story for you. Uh, first, an Instagram star put her own bathwater up for sale for $30 a bottle, and it sold out in three days. So this is um, Belle uh, Delphine, uh, and she's gotten the photo there. You can see boxes of... of uh, Water. Um, water. Boxes of, of containers human of human soup. Uh, thank you. It's a good good term for it. Um, <laughs> and, and they sold out within three days. A lot of people um, were disgusted by this. Uh, but, As they should be. But that didn't stop the others uh, from purchasing it. And then uh, what's amazing here is as we read, read through this a little bit, uh, people then uh, chose to do things with that, that water. Um, some uh, some drank it, uh, and then some, <laughs> in what we determined earlier was the most millennial thing you could do, uh, vaped it, because I guess it, it'll just turn it into a, a, a water vapor there. And I, I guess I, I do feel compelled to say if 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 you're listening, you're like, who is this? And you type this in, and you're at work. Uh, she, there are some not safe for work stuff that are associated with this individual. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. just FYI, there's your warning. Uh, also. Yeah, he did say someone vaped her bathwater. So I just want to reiterate oh, I'm sorry, that as well. Justin, we have an update on this story oh, right now. Oh, really? What? Uh, coming to us from HITC.com, Belle Delphine, uh, it's probably like Bella Delphine or something, and I'm just saying it horribly, responds to allegedly giving over 50 people herpes. <laughs> did you know that by drinking or vaping bathwater, uh, apparently you can get herpes? What kind of herpes do you get when you vape? Is there science behind this? Uh, is it lung herpes? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Remember when the How? social media influencers were people like Mark Shuttleworth, you know, and, and Steve Wozniak, and now it's How quickly, whoever the hell this is. How quickly can herpes manifest itself in in one's self? I don't know. I mean, it's incredibly virulent. And it oh, causes... I'm sorry. I'm sorry to cut you off. We're getting breaking news now uh, from the Daily Dot. Oh. Dot com. No. People are not getting herpes uh, from drinking Bella Delphine's bathwater. So uh, she has weighed in on this uh, as well. And you know she's serious because she doesn't have pink hair. Yeah. In this well, photo. that's just in, in this photo. Oh, uh, oh I thought account. this was her official press release hair. Uh, but she does look <laughs> more um, regular there. Mm. You... Uh... There was a weird pause there. Yeah, I didn't know what words yep. to, all right, to use. Now, I'm going to fess up to something. I normally do a great job of making sure that I pre-read all of our articles and do my research. I did not read any of these articles. Headlines are fine here. Are, are there any quotes from scientists anywhere in this stuff? Scientists. Let's see. <laughs> uh, Does Snopes count? Uh, did Snopes reference Snopes, a scientist? So Snopes oh, is yeah. the is like, so Daily Data is saying Snopes said, no, that could not happen. Did you go over to Snopes? Uh, no, actually, I'm getting ready to go there now. So okay, yeah, because Snopes is reputable. Yeah, like, yeah, we'll, we'll take that. But uh, uh, but Snopes they're not scientists, check. so hopefully they have to reference somebody. Uh, you know, they do fact checking uh, on a lot of different things. So I I I trust them, I suppose. Uh, so, well, so anyhow, Snopes says that <laughs> they give no justification on the Snopes website. It just says false. Like, that's their determination on the Snopes website. And that's it. Just yeah, it's, it's like false. No one was dumb enough to drink that, right? 
So yeah, well, people are dumb enough, and you know this is why it's so important to get a good education. <laughs> it really is. Y'all have watched The Water Boy, right? Yes. You yeah. remember that scene where he goes, which reminds me, kids, don't smoke. And I feel like this is one of those moments. Remind me, kids, don't drink bath water. Or vape it. Or vape it. Because we don't know which way people potentially, allegedly, did not get herpes from this. I'm just wondering, like, how many of those containers spilled in shipping? Oh, my gosh. Mm. I know you're not allowed to sell, like, uh, or to, to ship, like, Fluids and would this count? Stuff does this count? I don't know. I think I think she broke a law. Liquids or gels? You probably you have to put it in your check bag too. All right. Well, anyway, I'm sorry. Social yeah. media influencers are right on the edge of IT. So let's uh, let's jump back. We've got an interview, don't we? Yeah, Ross Brunson. <laughs> he's a he's a an Instagram star. No, he's not. No. Uh, <laughs> he may be, but we have him in town here doing some uh, some videos for CompTIA, where he works uh, as an uh, an author as well, working on their Linux Plus. Um, LPIC one uh, cert guide. So um, let's go ahead and take a quick break and we will come back right here with uh, Russ on TechNATO. CompTIA and IT Pro TV are hitting the road next month and you can be part of the journey. We'll be dropping by offices across the U.S. with food, drinks, and swag to celebrate IT pros like you. IT doesn't only happen in big cities and large corporations, so we'll be making visits to smaller towns and offices too. Who will we meet? Where will we stop? You can find out by following IT Pro TV on social media. Subscribe to our YouTube channel to track the route and catch video recaps of each day. It's the road to ChannelCon 2019 from CompTIA and IT Pro TV. We'll see you soon. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to TechNATO. And as promised, we're here in studio. Uh, well, we, we've kicked out. Peter, uh, so you know our uh, our quality level has remained unchanged, and we've brought in <laughs> Linux training architect Ross Brunson, uh, who is amazingly here in Gainesville with us this week. So we had a, a special opportunity to rope him in and, and talk to him about all things Linux. I'm really excited about it. Ross, thanks for joining us, and would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to our viewers? Sure, I'm a longtime author uh, in the open source world. Pretty much anything that has to do with uh, L the LPIC from LPI or the Linux Plus, I've worked with that. I've done a lot of training. Um, and also, one of the things I really like to focus on is the open source workforce. So getting folks into this workforce, when they're in it, skilling them up, you know, trying to fill that workforce. And, you know, we've talked about this pre-interview. There's a big gap there. So lots of work to do, and I like doing that. Now, I, uh, I, I do a lot of Linux training myself, mm -hmm. and I've, I've enjoyed the Linux operating system for a long, long time. Uh, and for, for many years, it was kind of a like a hobby, a side thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then over the last decade, it's gone from being a kind of a fringe technology to becoming a you must know this technology. And that's been it's been great for me because that, that skill set's become really useful. Mm -hmm. uh, but you were highlighting how it's even more important now because of that, that gap that's been created right. by employees. So uh, <clears throat> l let's talk a little bit about that. So like, wh why is there so much demand for Linux training right now? Well, number one, the, the thing that happened... Uh, it, I like to jokingly go back and say, for about 11 years, it was the year of the Linux desktop, right? <laughs> I think and that then, was this year, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and it'll be next year, too. Um, th th I love it when the industry tries to make those predictions, right? So it's like, it's going to be this next year. Well, sometimes it isn't. And what it was for the longest time was we were trying to beat the server market. We're trying to do everything we could in the Linux world to get distributions to the point, you know, Red Hat, SUSE, uh, canonical to where they were enterprise ready and enterprise ready means it's got to have support. And so we achieved that. And all of a sudden at one point, everybody looked around and kind of confused like, Hey, where'd the battle go? 
we won. So 70 plus, you know, 80 plus percent of the server market. And so now the whole thing is, you know, everything runs on top of Linux. So you've got this, this, you know, this hand that's Linux skills, and then you've got the cloud technologies, you've got, you know, everything, web 2.0, 3.0, all the stuff that fits on top of that. Well, a lot of people have come over to those cloud technologies without the benefit of the underlying foundation. And so one of the most popular things that we do is, you know, get people into the workforce, but also take sysadmins who've been out there for years working with physical or even just standard virtualized servers and bring them into the DevOps engineer world. So that transition from sysadmin to DevOps engineer is a really important one, and it's one that I like to spend a lot of time on. And I know one thing I've heard from a lot of people is that when they transition to the cloud, mm -hmm. uh, maybe on-premises, maybe they were running all Windows Server or, or other technologies. And when you go to the cloud and you have things like auto-scaling, where you can mm -hmm. rapidly sp spin up tons of servers, mm -hmm. licensing costs become pretty extreme. Oh, yeah. And so people were finding, wait, if, if I just deploy it on Linux, mm -hmm. I can do that for free and I can still get support. Uh, right. it, it, was, it was really the right solution. So now... You have Windows admins that were having to learn it, and even mm -hmm. admins of other other platforms like uh, FreeBSD. There were several right. people which BSD is a great platform, but in the cloud, you see primarily support for the major Linux distros. Mm -hmm. so. Well, you know the thing that it's a juxtaposition of a bunch of things that happened all at once, and it, it's almost like you know if you look back at the history of Flickr, and Flickr used to be an online role playing game that had a great screenshot sharing uh, capability. Well, the advent of digital photos and the ability to upload things and all that, all of a sudden, Flickr became a photo-sharing site and the preeminent one for decades, right? So when you get these inflection points, these places where you know everybody's really upset about licensing and the cloud is now possible, and all of a sudden, something that you never thought would happen happens. And so that's the part where Linux has made these quantum jumps forward because of those inflection points, right? Anybody who sat there and looked at their Microsoft licensing for the cloud and thought, gosh, I wish I could do something about this, all they need to do is a little research on Google or just go to one of, our, one of the Linux shows, and they'll see you know, dozens of people that will help you with that. Now, th this is what I'm sitting here kind of mulling over. We're moving to the cloud. Mm -hmm. What would you say the biggest issue that you found moving sysadmins to DevOps engineers' positions? Not necessarily my role, but I, I've been asked to do many things and move throughout. What are the biggest hurdles that they have to overcome, uh, whether it be from a training mm -hmm. perspective or just like a mindset perspective that you've encountered? Uh, asking for a friend, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, Totally not me. Absolutely, not a problem for me. Um, the biggest problem I find is that folks will have this mismatch of, they're, they're, let's, let's use the cattle versus pets uh, analogy. And so the servers that we've been used to using, yeah, there you go, that, that look. So cattle, <laughs> I'm interested so to see where this goes. Pet servers are the ones that are in the back room, and you've got a relationship with this thing. And it might be a love-hate relationship, and let's face it, often it is. The uh, relationship you have with that server is a one-to-one -one relationship. You may even have a virtualization server back there running multiple lab images, et cetera. But you know where to go exactly when that thing goes down. And when it goes down, panic ensues. Grab the pizza, the Pepsi. We've got an all-nighter going on because we have to revive this server. Now, you may come to the situation where you realize it cannot be revived. Okay, so you go out back, you've been given a nice burial, and you get the new one in, which you do your restore onto. But you still have a pet. Right, You know this thing by name, server one. In the cloud and the new way of doing things, and increasingly the only way of doing things for small organizations and medium organizations, is you have cattle. You have herds of cattle. 
So what you do is you, you have all your YAML files that help you set up these servers and, you know, and you get it all scripted out and you do your load up and your, your dev and your test. And then when it's ready, you put it into production. One of those goes down, doesn't matter. It's like, a, you know, being a rancher, you come out in the morning and one of the cows is gone. Well, I'll try to find it, but it's not going to stop the rest of the herd. Right. So you don't have the same relationship with servers that are in the cloud and that are easily replaceable that you would with that one that's in the back room. That's a huge step to how should we say teach DevOps engineers not to care about servers. You care about them, but you care differently. And that's one of the ones. And so also some of the ways of, of um, people will get very confused about you know, wait, wait a minute, this is all built from just a single text file? Well, I wouldn't call YAML just a text file. <laughs> you know, it's a markup language. But the ability to spin up all aspects of your testing, dev, production, and everything else from exactly the same set of scripts and all the economies of scale that that gives you, that's another one that takes a little bit of working them through. So. And that's something that like Linux is, is really, really good at because it, I mean, it's basically taken its configuration from text files for years mm -hmm. versus Windows and some of the other OSs that are like Mac OS really where they just mm -hmm. don't, they weren't built that way originally. They're kind of being retrofit now. Right. And so, you know, you mentioned automation platforms or you mm -hmm. know, just automation in general. Mm -hmm. We are seeing this big drive for things like Ansible mm -hmm. and... Um, Chef and Puppet. Chef and yeah, Puppet. And, mm. uh, what, what's the one from Intel? I'm, I, I've forgotten the name now. So anyhow, they, there's a Salt couple stack. of them. SaltStack uh, is another one. SaltStack is yeah. a huge one right yep. now. And those, that, that's not so much a, a Linux thing, but we are seeing mm -hmm. that if you're deploying Linux on a large scale, that those are the technologies you need to learn. Uh, have you making any inroads on those? Do you have a preference or is that, you know, you stick mostly with the operating system? Um, I do stick a lot with the operating system, but the moment that you have to produce something over and over and over again, like in a training environment, you realize I have to do something. And so there's really two ways to do it. There's the image-based, which, well, let's look at Amazon, right? Amazon's AMIs is going to be a, an image-based way of doing this. And that's fine and all, but sometimes it takes a while to spool up, and other times it, it's not the most up-to-date. So that's the old let's release, and then when something changes significantly, let's release again. Okay, well, that, that's kind of the old way of doing things. There's sort of a, the building from YAML files, build, you know, installing everything as you need it, uh, kind of on an ad hoc basis. It seems, especially to you know, older sysadmins and people who've been you know, doing things in a, a more released way, it seems a little slapdash and kind of like, wow, we're really taking chances. But it works probably you know, 99% of the time. And when it doesn't, it's usually because somebody updated something and all you have to do is figure it out. And I always tell everybody, this, folks, is why we have test and dev environments. <laughs> Don't put it into production unless it's been okay in test and dev. And the fact that I can just dedicate a certain portion of my you know, infrastructure, or I should say a cloud provider's infrastructure, to doing that means I can spool it up, see if it works. If it does, great, it moves on. If not, fix it, iterate. And so just that ability to do that means that people don't have to spend nearly as much time doing installs and all the rest of it. Now, one, one risk that I've experienced with, with Linux in general is that uh, sometimes it can be a little too cutting edge and that <laughs> new technologies become available very, very quickly mm -hmm. that take longer to come out in other platforms. And just as an example, we'll use containers, right? Yeah. Where Canonical put a ton of work into LXC mm -hmm. and then it was a, a great platform. You could create Linux containers right. and it did a good job. But then Docker came in and just overnight kind of Seemingly, yeah. Yeah, clean out LXC's clock. So uh, so sometimes there's technologies that we don't necessarily want to dive into. So do you, do you have any recommendations for people on like how, 
how they should identify when something is ready for them to actually start making that investment into it, or uh, is it just kind of wait and see where the wind blows? Well, uh, as a as somebody once said to me years ago, as I was staring at a horse track, do you understand the concept of win, place, and show? <laughs> and I'm like, no. So they explained it to me, and that is, is that you know you, you have to keep an eye on all these technologies, and at a certain point there is that tipping. Uh, moment where you realize, hey, this is going to be big. Sometimes it'll just come out of nowhere, but rarely do things really come out of nowhere. But as a sysadmin and as you know, DevOps people, we tend to get a little focused on what we're doing, and and you know, so it's important, I think, go to conferences, watch videos of people who are doing interesting stuff, have that you know system and monitor up on the side there that has you know crazy YouTube videos from people you've never heard of playing. And I think that gives us a little bit of a canary in a coal mine moment, you know. The other thing is, is whenever you see a technology that everybody's hopping on board of, just ask yourself how many times that's happened before and when is that docker going to swoop in out of nowhere and kill it off, right? And we've seen that happen over and over and over again. You know, we could go back and talk about, uh, you know, Lotus and Ami Pro and <laughs> WordPerfect and all these other things that have just been wiped off the earth, but they were the biggest thing ever. At one point. So. I'm always amazed when you find out like they still sell them or you can get some, you know, decades old version. Yeah. They, they still sell at a full retail. Uh, those are, are still out there. Now, you mentioned video. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you have been in the studio with uh, yeah. ITPR TV's Daniel Lowry this mm -hmm. week, or at least uh, yesterday. I didn't get a chance to, to see any of that content. What are you guys working on back there? So we're doing something that's basically an introduction to Linux, getting started with Linux. And what it is, is it matches that CompTIA Linux Plus, let's get you into this market uh, concept and so the inestimable Mr. Stanger, from who's the evangelist of CompTIA and I are old friends, and we've worked on this you know a lot in different parts of the industry, and it's just a joy to come in and work with somebody like Daniel and work with your crew, and it's a lot of fun, and I think it's really going to be helpful because they're little short vignettes, and they they solve uh, you know they we tell what the problem is, solve the situation, and then recap it, and so they're really easy to consume. Are, are you covering uh, not to do sudo rm-rf slash just so people don't get trolled on the internet? I've, I've seen that all over the place. They're like, now how you fix your Linux machine is sudo rm-rf slash and everything is golden. Yeah, it's you're, you're warning people. It frees up a lot of disk space it all does, at once. It does, it yeah. does. I mean, yeah. I don't... We, a we actually did cover that it was important to tab things out with yeah. autocomplete as opposed to just go ahead and execute it and it'll be okay. You know, in that in that ask, in that asking for a friend moment, yes, yeah, yeah, asking for a friend moment. Mm -hmm. But you know, I guess if we went to the cloud and it was cattle, then you're like, ah, whatever, it's fine, just go oh, on about you. I ruined it. It's okay. I'll yeah. just load it from the YAML files. I, I'm kind of interested. Like some of your analogies make it seems like maybe you and I have similar backgrounds. Uh, <laughs> Probably because yeah. I was like cattle, horse tracks, <laughs> show and win. Yep. Very interesting. So I'm going to have to go check out some of those short vignettes uh, just to see. Be like, I know that. I know that. Uh, so I, I, it's kind yeah. of fun. I think, I think it's important when you've been in the industry for a long time and, and such a long time. Um, you come up with these analogies that are just – sometimes you stumble on them and other times you construct them. And I've told my classes for years, I say, well, my analogies, they'll be memorable. They might be slightly disturbing. But that's how you stay memorable. You know, you have, and when you have a system or a set of systems go down, it's memorable. And it hurts sometimes. And so I, I tend to make fun of myself you know, in the situations I've had and then let other people identify with that. I've seen people who do it the other way and, you know, terrify their audiences and I don't I don't like that, but but it but it really does help. You know, if you can if you can use your own experience and something terrible that happened to you and help somebody else not do that, 
I think that's a kindness. You we know. refer to those as uh, RGEs, resume generating events. Yes, and uh, <laughs> yep. we were discussing they're also CLMs, career limiting moves. Mm. Yes. So, I do love acronyms. You want re- to retirement mistakes. retirement generation experience? There, then your RGE. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right, uh, for those of you just tuning in, we are interviewing Ross Brunson, Linux training architect, and you had just mentioned Linux Plus, mm-hmm. uh, CompTIA's Linux Plus certification, right. and I know we're creating content around that, but. Uh, there have been some changes this year. Uh, that yeah. For many, many years, Linux Plus and the LPIC 1 certification were tied together. Mm-hmm. That's now changing. So let's talk about that for a minute. How, how has that changed Linux Plus content you're generating? So it, let's, let's go back just a little bit. The original Linux Plus was a great effort on the part of CompTIA. Uh, to come up with a Linux uh, uh, beginning Linux certification. Now, CompTIA tends to inhabit, um, and some people are, you know, they don't understand this, but CompTIA inhabits that, uh, how should we say, beginner or the introductory level. That's their skill. That's their goal. They've stated this forever. And so people are sometimes surprised when they don't see a, another level that's there. But it helps because CompTIA then partners with other organizations, which I think really, you know, helps the organization and helps the industry itself. So they had that initial one, and then uh, it didn't do as well as they wanted to. I think it was really timing, you know, and just the fact that it, that everybody else had something in the market and there wasn't enough market. And so they stopped doing that, but with, instead of not having something for Linux, they partnered with LPI. And so what they did is they white-labeled LPI's two, certi- two exams, their LPIC-1 certification. I happened to be in the Novell organization around that time, uh, working as a, a data uh, data engineer and, um, excuse me, what were we, um, technical solutions engineer, they called us, which basically an SE, uh, sales engineer. So the fun thing was, is that watching all this, you know, start the shifting happen, et cetera, I actually did some of the beta work with the original Linux Plus and gave my feedback. And I was actually happy when they did the deal with LPI because LPI already had a huge network. And so the, the, the thing that came out of that was a two for one deal. And so if you got your Linux Plus, then L- the LPI gave you the LPIC 1. Now, all of a sudden, instead of five points on my resume, I've got 10 points. Yeah, and it was three for one at one point, right? There was a third <laughs> it, one, wasn't yes, there? Yes, it was, was, as it a matter Susie of fact. Was it or somebody? Yep. SUSE did that, the okay. SUSE organization. Is, and I, I used to be the certification architect for SUSE. And so that was a, it was a fun thing to go to shows and say, hey, if you take it this way, you get three certifications. And you can actually get four if you do another fun thing. But now the organizations have gotten to the point where their, their goals don't necessarily point in the same directions. And it was time for CompTIA to do another run at this. And they did a great job. Yeah, no, a, a nice thing about the LPI is Linux Plus lined up with LPIC 1, mm-hmm. but with LPI, you can continue on, and there's LPIC 2, and, and there's multiple LPIC 3s, depending on the mm-hmm. track you want yep. to follow. So if you're getting started in Linux, we find that Linux Plus is a great mm-hmm. place to start, but then if you're going to yep. continue and specialize in it, the LPI certs are, are really, really effective. You know, and I did a little set of, series of videos when I joined LPI years ago. I, I worked for LPI as a membership director, and basically it meant everything. Uh, <laughs> but but I did a little series of videos of why get a certification and why do a vendor neutral. And I, I always recommend doing a vendor neutral distribution first. You know, it's like you, you have to install something. So pick an RPM, you know, do SUSE and Red Hat or Fedora and OpenSUSE or Arch and whatever, right? The key thing is, is that you learn both sides. And it used to be that people would say, well, I'm just going to take the, the Debian side of stuff. Really? You think you're going to work your entire career just on the Debian stuff? You're going to get an RPM-based project someday, you know, and, and, and vice versa. 
So a well-rounded sysadmin needs to have both of those sides, I, I really feel. And yeah. I, I am by no means a sysadmin, but I, I, you know, with the whole DevOps flaunting, I, I had previous positions where they go, you know what that means, Justin? We need you to deploy this. And that exact thing happened to me. I mm-hmm. was very familiar with Ubuntu and Debian. And then the our target was CentOS. Oh. And I was like, I don't know what any of this does. <laughs> uh, key point is I had to deploy an Apache web server. Well, on Debian and Ubuntu, it's Apache 2. Um, yep. CentOS, it's uh, HTTPD. And right. then, like the configuration files are in different places. Mm-hmm. So that was like a three-day extravaganza. Um, now, with that said, it, it kind of brings up, we, ha- we have these tracks. Right. I'm not a sysadmin. Mm-hmm. I come from a software development background. If I were to get started to, to, to kind of level up myself, right. what is your recommendation as far as you know, getting into the Linux world? Because mm-hmm. if I'm doing development, there's a good chance I'm going to end up on a Linux web server. Or you're going you're gonna to end up getting dropped into it yeah. you know, yeah. with, without your knowledge, like a lot of people. So Salesforce and some other really large organizations have, for several years now, been moving everybody into the Linux world. And it was a lot of fun to go and do these kind of Linux as, as a development platform classes for them. I, my recommendation is always this. Pick a vendor-neutral certification. Let's say, for example, uh, he says, being here for CompTIA, let's, let's pick the Linux Plus. It doesn't really matter which. It's like it's like picking a day planner, you know. Just pick one and use it, and, and go with it. And I find that the process of sitting down, you know, printing out the objectives, figuring out what you're studying, having your different resources, videos, books, the web, whatever it is, your 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 test platform, you know, VMware, KVM, whatever. It dedicating yourself to working through a, a set of objectives or curriculum like that is automatically going to give you a set of skills if you're there and paying attention. But there's something organized about working through those objectives. And a lot of people will they'll look at the objectives and they'll they'll have this complaint. And the complaint is very simple. That's a lot of stuff. Well yes, yes, having a skill is a lot of stuff. But they'll say, well I only work in six out of these 12 objectives. Back to that point about RPM and Debian. Are you always going to just work on those six objectives? Or are you going to have another six or eight or ten or whatever? So the depth and breadth of being a sysadmin is huge. But once you learn it, then you can focus on the things that they give you on each one of those jobs. I, I can fully attest to I was like, this is what I'm going to be working on. And then they were like, so that thing you were doing? Yeah, you're not doing that anymore. You need right. to go do this other right. thing. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. They're like, well, we need it by Thursday. I thought so you, you were certified. So, yeah, I can fully attest that that is at least my truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, whoopsie-daisy. But you're right. the, uh, yeah, I'm going to switch to morning talk show mode here because okay. you, uh, you you mentioned organizing your training and uh, you have a book coming out soon, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Actually, you're right. I do. Um, I've written uh, several books, and it's all on the same general topic. So I try to stick in the world of Linux and you know the certification side of things. It's just something that I like to do. Uh, and having worked for different organizations in that capacity, it it just seems like, you know, why waste all those analogies and all those those explanations? And I actually, years ago, did the first LPI boot camps in the U.S. And we did this off of a set of books. You know, you go out and you find all the books and you look at them and none of them were up to date. And it was terribly frustrating. And so I started putting together curriculum and coming up with something that I thought would make a good book. 
Well, it turns out when I talked to a publisher, it would. And so that was the uh, exam uh, Q, Q-U-E, uh, the publisher. I think they're now part of Pearson. Um, they took a chance on me, and so we did the exam cram two for the LPIC. And it was perfect because it was three and a half years of my giving classes in a book, and it perfectly met my needs, and it seemed to meet the needs of a lot of people. So that was the first one, and I really, I really kind of got hooked on the concept of if you're doing something and you're, and you're getting a lot of information out of it, why not share it? Not just with the class, but with as many people as possible. Turns out I also shared some of my typos uh, as well. So I got lots of good feedback about that. Thanks, everybody. Thanks to the internet, the biggest And they're, they're so nice about checker. it, too, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, they are, absolutely. <laughs> oh, hey, I noticed you had a typo. <laughs> Spell this word wrong. That's I wish right. you would die. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa, that escalated yeah. quickly. Are Three we, times, Are yeah. we on 4chan? But, but you know, the, the fun thing with, with doing these is that it, it really does help folks. And, you know, I, I have a joke that if you're going to go take an exam, you need to drink a liter of water and eat a banana, right? So hydrate and get some niacin in your, you know, in, in your system, right? So I have this series of pictures that people have sent me of the liter of water, the banana, and the person with their certification. You know, and they're like, I did it, I did it. I'm like, oh, man, if I'd known you were going to do that, I'd have had something even more funny than that. So, but <laughs> that it's, is an oddly specific set it's, of advice. It is. You're like, it, all right, so liter of water, banana, you got to cluck like a chicken, and that, then you have to right, shake this maraca, you know? and then boom, you're ready to go. That's right. But it's been so gratifying to see people get something out of this. And just, you know, sit down and they read the book and they come back and they notice the little Easter eggs and fun stuff you put in it. Um, so I'll continue to do those. But I think a lot of our future is not really in the reading so much as in the speaking. And that's another great thing about coming down and seeing your folks here and just this entire busy beehive of people who were producing content to help folks get ahead. Yep. Now, if any of you are interested in uh, checking out that book, uh, it is available on Amazon and other places. Mm -hmm. uh, be careful if you go in there because the, the exam has changed. This mm -hmm. is the new Linux Plus XK0-004. Uh, the previous version is still available for still sale. And, and it's, it's not like Linux has changed that much between no. the exams, but you certainly want to make sure you're studying the right material. Uh, it is available for pre-order. Do you know about when that's going to launch? Well, let's see. I'm just proofing Chapter 7 now, so I'd say about another month. Okay. Fast? That's that's the goal. Um, chapter seven out of twenty chapters. Well, I've, I've got half of it. <laughs> I do I do want to give a nice shout out to my friend Bo Bo Rothwell, who is the co-author of the book. Uh, Bo is just a machine as far as training and things like that, and he and I have collaborated on a number of things. So he's got about half of the book. I've got about half of the book, and so he's already finished with his, and I'm taking my time with mine. <laughs> is this one of the since you've written this new book? And I I have to ask: Is this yeah. one where if I count every third word? In the book, is there going to be like a secret message to me about how to pass the exam? Or yes, okay, where yeah. the holy grail is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. look, I found this pot of leprechauns gold, and I got my Linux Plus. <laughs> yeah. It was the yeah. greatest. I'm, I'm telling you that. So, six years from now, when you think you found the message, let me know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, just so we're clear, I'm not going to go look for yeah. it. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> and the message will just be a liter of water. Oh, that's, right, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Shake yeah. this maraca and dance like a chick. <laughs> Everything's good to go. Uh, that's that would be fun. I remember. Those infomercials. But you know, the, the, the cool thing about doing a, a book like that is that you think, well, I put all this effort into this, and nobody really gets, you know, you don't get rich from writing books, I can tell you that, not unless you write a whole boatload of them. Uh, but that gratification of having somebody 
send you an email and say, hey, man, I got my certification, or even better, being at a show and you recognize somebody or they recognize you, and just hearing the story of somebody who was a, you know, one kid was a receptionist at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And that, that's the job he had. And he came to a class and he got the book. And three or four years later, I saw him at uh, some big job fair and he was a senior sysadmin. Hmm. I was like, oh, man, this is great. You know, it just makes you feel like you've actually done something, you know. So always good. All right, Ross. Well, if any of our viewers want to, uh, you know, follow your activities, cyberstalk you, uh, find out more about the book and, and the other yeah. things that you're working on, uh, what's the best place for people to reach out to you? You know, you can hit me on the LinkedIn profile. It's simple, Ross Brunson. There's only nine of me out there, of us, sorry, out there. Uh, I'm not the insurance guy from uh, Salt Lake or <laughs> the kid who's still in college. It seems, yeah. it seems like there's an interesting story behind it. I'm not him. That's it's his backup no, no. career. No, that's fine. I, I get the Doyle Brunson thing all the time. Do you play cards? No. Uh, or RossBrunson.com. And so that's just a little blog that I th throw up there, little things that I do. Um, I do a lot of stuff on Facebook and Instagram. So if you want to, you can look me up on Instagram at Ross Brunson or Ross.Brunson, I think it is. Um, so I post lots of fun stuff. I never, I, I just do travel and things like that. So, Awesome. Well, before we wrap up, do you have anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Mm, you know, I really think that it's important for folks to improve themselves. And, you know, a lot of organizations are going through this process of how do I, how do I incent my employees or my contractors or whoever to keep going? And so I think, you know, getting a subscription to uh, places like, like you run and, and the other places that are out there, uh, doing a certification every six months, even just a small one or something like that, it shows progress. And nothing helps you in your career like actually getting progress, but your employer is going to like it. And you never know. You might get that really cool project when you buy a new company or they decide to do something with Linux. You could be the one. Awesome. Well, thanks for spending the time with us. We appreciate it. I know the viewers out there oh, appreciate it. Thank you. All right. And for you viewers out there, stay tuned because there is more Technado coming up next. Are you a career changer or a budding tech pro who's looking to start their career in IT? I'm Wes Bryan, and along with my fellow IT Pro TV edutainer, Cherokee Boos, we've just shot a new show just for you. Each week, we'll dive into topics to help you launch your career in tech. Watch how to get started in IT on YouTube now. Just head to youtube.com forward slash IT Pro TV to watch and look for new episodes every Saturday at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. All right, welcome back to TechNado, and uh, thanks for kicking me out for that interview. I we guess. figured you would contribute nothing at all. Yeah, no. <laughs> and we needed did, the chair. <laughs> did anyone ask him his name? No, I told him his name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you are now Ross Brunson. <laughs> I hope I got it right because he played it off. Uh, yeah, <laughs> my job has been taken. Yeah, was that the real Ross Brunson? We don't know. All right. Um, I would like to point out that we uh, did find out during the interview there are 11 other Ross Brunsons, and one of them is an insurance salesman, oddly. That you say that. Yeah. Is insurance salesman? No, no. Because that would be crazy. Yeah. We didn't ask that. He might. No. He might. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you if all other insurance salesmen are equal, why wouldn't you go with the one well, that could that, confuse everyone? There's that Discover Card commercial where they say, like, we treat you like you would treat you, mm -hmm. and the lady calls on the phone, like and it's herself yourself, on the yeah. other end. Yeah. yeah. Like, that, that could be his life. Why not? Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, I would <laughs> like to point out that uh, I did get bingo. Uh, and it was pointed out to me by you all um, that um, <laughs> I was missing the word container. 
And uh, and when we were talking about um, bathwater, as you do in a podcast, uh, you asked what kind of containers they're in. So, you know, me, I'm looking for containers Docker, in context. Kubernetes. But, yeah. uh, but I'll take it. So Justin and I got a big chuckle out of that because I purposely used it <laughs> out of context. Noticed, you know, <laughs> I was like, ah, I said it. So rewind. <laughs> yeah, I got cloud container, free space, exploit, and encrypt. You're... Yeah, I was real away. close. I needed Bitcoin, which Bitcoin. is odd. We didn't talk about Bitcoin, or I missed it. Or we all three missed it, right? Yeah, and Don is, who knows, because Don just talks and doesn't... Yeah, I threw my card away. Yeah. <laughs> He's I got, worried about I got informing hacking. the public. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to get you to... <laughs> Peter and I are like... <laughs> yeah. hey, get him to say, yeah, get him to say this. Get him to say that. Uh, all right, hey, we want to let you know a couple uh, about a couple things before we let you go. First of all, uh, our webinars. We had a great webinar uh, that we just recorded here, um, and it was on disaster planning uh, and not only can you still go back and see that because it'll be up in the archive here um, in just a actually by the end of the day today um, it'll be over at itpro.tv slash webinars you can go and find that um, but we're also going to do a follow-up to that right sure you're, you're going to do a follow-up to that this is like you you telling Ross his name John, you're going to do another webinar yep so our 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 first webinar was you know disaster well when disaster strikes right and, and yeah, it's all about like disaster that. planning when you're doing it right, when you're doing it ahead of time. So we're going to do a follow-up, which is disaster planning when you haven't done planning. Or you, you've already done all your planning. You've already done all you could. What are some other things you might be able to think of that are last-minute things that can be achieved? And when I say last-minute, I mean, like, it, Amazon Prime's not even going to work out. Yeah. Like, what like can If the hurricane's do? coming, do I grab the server physically and run with it? What's what's the best thing? For I love that idea. We should practice that. Yeah, <laughs> that should be part of the web. You just grab it and run. I'd like you to do the webinar, and uh, we have Studio Four here that has uh, has the server room as the background with glass, and I'd like to just see me in there just pulling things out, <laughs> just pulling stuff stuff from like rack. listening to what do I do now? Okay, get this. All right, yep. let's go. And uh, just remember, it's important when unloading a rack to unload from the bottom up. Right, that's the safe oh, way. Sure. <laughs> that, then we can see the rack collapse balance. on him. I think, I think that that gets confounded with the number of people who die from vending machines being. Tipped over on. It's like you're basically playing Tetris with me remotely. <laughs> like whichever t thing I tell him to pull out, if it falls on him, I win. Hey, imagine Tetris, except like one of the pieces is soft and squishy. Not right? Tetris. <laughs> I, meant, I meant to say Jenga. Yeah. Jenga. <laughs> like, oh, Jenga, I win. For some reason, I got a little, like a little Peter, like, <laughs> and when you drop down, it's. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds great. We'll get that game going. Um, all right. We also have a live hacking webinar coming up. That one's uh, first. That's on July 25th uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern time, and it is uh, about Eternal Blue. So, um, and that that's a uh, basically an exploit that that a so, red teamer can kind of take advantage of. Yes, Eternal Blue is one of the uh, the exploits that was leaked from the NSA toolkit back in the vault. Whatever seven release, I forgot the code that name they had. Uh, no, not from Snowden. Oh, but, Shadow uh, Workers. We haven't uh, said yeah, Snowden in weeks, and we even took it off bingo. And if it came up today, I'd be really could, upset. Could it happen. Um, but it is so. It, it's kind of an older exploit, but many ransomware toolkits are using it to spread around. And we saw it last year with Petya and not Petya and all that. Uh, so what Daniel's going to be doing is showing us how Eternal Blue works. Actually, kind of running through that process. He's going to write his own uh, exploit to take advantage of it and show how to pop a machine, and then I'll show how to protect it, which is actually super easy to protect, uh, you know, because most of the vendors have patched their systems at this point. All right, and then when we're attacked by um, by that exploit in the next week, we'll know. 
It's our own that fault. We've trained an army <laughs> <laughs> against us. Perfect. Um, but we'll have you to uh, be able to help us. Uh, fix that. All right. I uh, also want to let you know finally about um, training from IT Pro TV. If you head over to go.itpro.tv slash technado, we have a coupon code for you there, technado30. Get you 30% off the lifetime of your membership. Um, as long as you keep it active, you continue to get that discount. Uh, we also have uh, a demo request uh, form there. If you have a team, uh, want to find out about all the cool features we have for teams, you can check that out as well. That's all over at go.itpro.tv slash technado. All right, well, thank you, gentlemen, and uh, it's nice to know now uh, where I stand on the totem pole when a when a guest comes in. Or where you don't stand. Yeah. 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 Second, <laughs> I thought it was last one in, his first one out, but... Uh, yeah, we're not doing cues, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, fair enough. Well, thank you all uh, for joining us, and we will see you next week right here on Technique.